0: Welcome to Brain Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Brain Stuff, Lauren Vogelbaum here. Last month, we ran an episode about the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and some of her historic concurring opinions during the 27 years that she sat on the highest court of the United States. Today, we wanted to highlight a few cases in which Justice Ginsburg did not agree with the majority opinion of the court, because after all, a dissenting opinion can be just as important. First up, let's look at the case of Bush versus Gore from the year 2000. Anyone old enough to remember the 2000 presidential election probably shudders at the phrase hanging Chad. Referring to an incompletely punched paper ballot, the figure of speech became a main staple of news headlines and late night TV monologues for months. It all started in the state of Florida, where it was reported that Republican presidential candidate George W. Bush had beat Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore by just 1,784 votes. Because the margin was so slim, just 0.01%, state law required an automatic machine recount, which shrunk Bush's lead to just 327 votes. When the margin is that tiny, Florida law allows candidates to request a manual recount, which is just what Gore did in the four counties that traditionally voted Democrat, Volusia, Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade. The problem was, the counties were given seven days to certify their election returns to the Secretary of State, and they were concerned that they wouldn't make the deadline. Three counties missed the deadline entirely, Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade. Florida Secretary of State Katherine Harris had required any counties who needed a later filing date to submit a written explanation of the circumstances. But none of the county's submissions met Harris's standards for an extension, so she went ahead and certified Bush as Florida's winner. Fast forward a few weeks to when Gore's campaign obtained an order from the Florida State Supreme Court for a statewide manual recount. The next day, on December 9th, in a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the manual recounts must halt, and agreed to hear oral arguments from both parties. On December 11th, both parties presented their cases, Bush's team arguing that the Florida Supreme Court had exceeded its authority when it authorized the manual recount, Gore's team arguing that the case had already been decided at the state level and was not a matter for the federal court's. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a 7-2 vote, overturned the Florida decision in favor of Bush's team, ruling that the Florida Supreme Court had violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In the end, on the entire matter, the justices ruled 5-4, with the majority arguing that the Florida Supreme Court's decision to hold a statewide recount had created a new election law, something only the state legislator could do. Writing for the five-justice majority, Antonin Scalia stated the votes that were ordered to be counted were not legal votes, that is, those in which there is a clear indication of the intent of the voter. So the recount would do irreparable harm to Bush and the integrity of the democratic process. The dissenters, Ginsburg included, felt that the real threat to the democratic process was not ordering a recount. Despite being flawed, they said, a recount should be allowed to proceed because no vote should have a deadline to be counted. One noteworthy aspect to Ginsburg dissent, she ended it with a plain, I dissent, rather than her traditional, I respectfully dissent. Next, let's look at the 2013 case of Shelby County versus Holder. To do so, let's go back to 1965 at the height of the Civil Rights Movement when Congress enacted the Voting Rights Act, quote, to banish the blight of racial discrimination in voting which had been rampant even after previous legislature had technically made it legal for black people, indigenous people, and people of color to vote across the United States. Certain sections of the act created rules meant to protect it from changes down the road. In particular, Section 4B established a formula to identify areas of the country where discriminatory tests or devices had been most prevalent and to provide stricter provisions in those areas. These tests or devices included voting prerequisites like literacy tests. And under Section 5 of the Act, jurisdictions were required to seek approval by the Attorney General or a three-judge DC panel before making any changes to voting practices. This feature of the Act, known as a preclearance, was meant to ensure that new changes would have neither the intent nor the effect of racial discrimination on voting. While Section 5 was initially set to expire after five years, the act was reauthorized several times over the decades. Then, in 2013, Alabama's Shelby County challenged its constitutionality based on these tests and devices and preclearance requirements. The claim was that the sections exceeded Congress's power and thus were unconstitutional. According to the Supreme Court's 5-4 majority opinion, Section 4 was deemed unconstitutional because it imposed burdens that no longer made sense in the modern era and represented an unconstitutional violation of the power to regulate elections, which are supposed to be governed by the states themselves. In another major dissent, Ginsburg argued that the amendments support Congress's authority to enact legislation specifically targeting potential state abuses as long as Congress demonstrates that the means taken rationally advance a legitimate objective, like the Voting Rights Act. She wrote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Ginsburg wasn't alone in her opinion. Many leaders in politics and law expressed deep disappointment with the decision. And since the ruling, several states that were once covered under preclearance have passed laws to remove provisions like online voting registration and early voting. Five years after the ruling, nearly a 1,000 polling places had been shut down, many of which were located in predominantly African-American communities. Finally, let's consider the 2007 case of Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Anyone who saw the documentary RBG probably remembers the assertive Alabama drawl of Lily Ledbetter, the plaintiff in this important case of employment discrimination. Over the course of her nearly two decade career at the Goodyear plant in Gadsden, Alabama, where Ledbetter was one of just a few female supervisors, Ledbetter faced sexual harassment and was told by her employer that women shouldn't be working there. Because salaried employees were given or denied raises based on performance evaluations, Ledbetter believed she was being shortchanged compared with her male counterparts. Goodyear forbade employees to discuss pay, So Ledbetter didn't have solid proof of any sex-based discrimination until she received an anonymous note listing the salaries of three male managers. That's when she learned that she'd been paid 40% less than the men with equal jobs in her division. Ledbetter filed suit after her retirement in November of 1998, claiming discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Which prohibits employers from discriminating against employees on the basis of sex, race, color, national origin, and religion. The district court awarded Ledbetter over $3.5 million in back pay and damages, which the judge later reduced to $360,000. But upon repeal, Goodyear argued that for Ledbetter's claims to hold up in court, the alleged discriminatory events would have had to occur within the 180 day period before her filing and that since she had waited, her claim should not stand. The 11th Circuit ruled in Goodyear's favor, and while there were two pay decisions made during that 180-day period, the court felt, quote, there was insufficient evidence to prove that Goodyear had acted with discriminatory intent during that time. When the case made it to the Supreme Court, the justices had to decide whether a plaintiff is allowed to bring an action under Title VII when the illegal pay discrimination they're alleging occurred outside of the statutory limitations period. The court voted five to four that Ledbetter had missed her window. Ginsburg wrote a passionate dissent, arguing that, quote, pay disparities often occur, as they did in Ledbetter's case, in small increments, Cause to suspect that discrimination is at work develops only over time. Comparative pay information, moreover, is often hidden from the employee's view. Employers may keep under wraps the pay differentials maintained among supervisors, no less the reasons for those differentials. Small initial discrepancies may not be seen as meat for a federal case, particularly when the employee, trying to succeed in a non-traditional environment, is averse to making waves. While the case didn't turn out as Ledbetter's supporters had hoped, it did go on to make history. On January 29th of 2009, President Barack Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act as the first piece of legislation of his administration. The law overturned the Supreme Court's decision and states that each paycheck containing discriminatory compensation is a separate violation, no matter when that discrimination began. Today's episode was written by John Peritano and produced by Tyler Klang. For more on this and lots of other curious topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.